of Daniel 9. And I'm going to go back over my structural outline so that you have a clear understanding of what should be in the respective places in the answers. So if you didn't get a copy of last week's handout that's back there, as well as a copy of this week's, we will continue after we finish this consideration of the 70 weeks. But let's begin with prayer. Father, we have the scriptures open before us, and our confession is that these are the very words of the living God. We will leave this evening utterly amazed at the inspiring work of your spirit through the prophet Daniel, the magnificent detail and meticulous care with which you unraveled and unfolded the future history of the relationship between the nations and the people of Israel. We thank you for this trustworthy word. We thank you for its historicity. And above all, Father, we thank you for yourself, you who have given it to us, not only for our instruction and edification, but also to drive us to realize the kingdoms of this world hold no promise for our salvation, even for our security. You alone are our rock and our fortress. You alone are our God and Savior. And you have manifested yourself in that very history through your dear Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him and for this time to think upon your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you'll turn to the... uh, pages from last week where we begin the structural outline of the 70 weeks, Daniel 9, 24 to 27. I'm going to go back to uh, letter C on that outline, which contains the framed chiasm and uh, emphasize what answers should be in those uh, sections. Understand that I am proceeding by way of structural analysis. I am looking for patterns in the Hebrew text of this passage. And I am arguing that the structural outline is the key to the interpretation of this section without importing any other necessary uh, parentheses or millennial periods or uh, whatever you want to introduce into the passage which is not present in the structure of it. All right, so uh, letter C, which contains an A, B, and then a framing of verse 25 and a B prime, A prime outline. Letter A there is the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., or the 70 weeks for the city, as verse 25 indicates, which is in ashes, verse 24. Obviously, this is given to Daniel while he is in Babylon or Persia, and the city of Jerusalem lies in ashes as it had been reduced to rubble by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., Then the B uh, blanks, there are two of them, 
are the two Hebrew roots for the verb return and rebuild. And that frames, in verse 25, uh, the name Jerusalem, the name Messiah, and the period 69 weeks. So writing just across that uh, line there, Jerusalem, Messiah, in 69 weeks, because I want you to see the framing paradigm that emerges from this. And then the next two things we see are those very same Hebrew roots again. The word return and rebuild in the B prime line, and then the A prime line, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which is specifically detailed in verse 26, a complete destruction, as verse 27 indicates, from the uh, Gentile power, uh, which uh, concludes the vision of Nebuchadnezzar in Genesis in Je- and Daniel chapter two. Now I want you to notice that it is the Gentile power that has reduced Jerusalem to rubble at the beginning of the seventy weeks, and that is the first kingdom or the first monarchy in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. That is the head of gold. And the final destruction in verse 27 at the end of the 70 weeks is the last Gentile power, which is outlined in that uh, Colossus, that vision that uh, Nebuchadnezzar dreams, namely the iron legs and feet representing the Roman Empire. So we move from Babylon to Rome, even in the vision of Daniel 2, as we're moving from the beginning of the 70 weeks in the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians to the end of the 70 weeks of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire, the end of the 70 weeks, the Gentile powers squeezing the the promised land in that bracket. Now, the A-B sequence in that outline is a reverse paradigm. That is, God promises to reverse the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians at the beginning of the 70 weeks, 586 B.C., by having them return and rebuild. See, there's a reverse paradigm. He's going to reverse what happened to the city. But on the backside of this A prime, B prime, or B prime, A prime sequence, there's a reversal of the reversal, namely what was going to be rebuilt on return, is going to be turned back to destruction once again. So that we're going to end up at the end of the 70 weeks where we were at the beginning of the 70 weeks. This is a symmetrical paradigm. It's a framed symmetry. The 70 weeks constitute a framed narrative paradigm. Beginning with the destruction of Jerusalem, ending with the destruction of Jerusalem. In between a reversal of the destruction of Jerusalem, it's reversed from destruction to being rebuilt, and then it's reversed again from rebuilt to being destroyed. And at the center of that hostility are the Gentile world powers, particularly the first and the fourth monarchy, the gold and the iron of Daniel 2, the Babylonians and the Romans. All right, now another way, just below uh, what we just outlined, another way of looking at this is to lay it out, lay the A, B, A prime, A, B, B prime, A prime uh, out 
in, in a horizontal fashion. And there you will see the chiastic character. For A will be destruction of Jerusalem. B will be return and rebuild. B prime underneath A will be return and rebuild. And A prime will be destruction of Jerusalem again. And if you draw a line between the B and the B prime and the A and the A prime, it will crisscross in the middle. And that, of course, is a description of a perfect chiasm. And the chiasm is a mirror device in which, once again, the element of structural reversal is highlighted by the way the narrative or by the way the the elements of the structure fall out. All right. So we have then a symmetry. And we pointed out in, in the next part of your outline there, we pointed out that the symmetry of chapter 9, 24 to 27 is comparable to chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in verses 32 to 34, specifically the head of gold and the feet and legs of iron, iron mixed with clay. Now, having noted that, <clears throat> the symmetry of the 70 weeks is parallel to what is laid out <clears throat> in the initial vision of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, then there is is something which is not symmetrical here. And what is not symmetrical is chapter 7, verses 8 to 14. There is not a symmetrical association between the 70 weeks and chapter chapter 7, 8 to 14, Because there is no Antichrist in this 70 weeks paradigm. You can read these four verses, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, and you can look for an Antichrist in every phrase there, but you will not find him. The only way you can put an Antichrist into this passage is to insert it, to read it into it, and it's not there. And it's not there because this, this is symmetrical to the vision that Nebuchadnezzar saw in chapter 2, which went from the Babylonian Empire down to the Roman Empire and the stone cut out of the, out of the mountain without hands, which was the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, that chapter 2 paradigm was a paradigm of the succession of the empires from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome down to the first coming of Christ, the first advent of Jesus. That's exactly what we've got here. In the 70 weeks, we have this period from the Babylonian Empire at the beginning of the 70 weeks to the Roman Empire at the end of the 70 weeks and in between the Messiah or the Messiah being folded into it. In other words, chapter 9, 24 to 27 in the 70 weeks is a symmetrical parallel to chapter 2, and the fifth, the five monarchies. <clears throat> there is no projection beyond the first advent of Christ. <clears throat> there is no projection to the second coming of Christ in these two symmetrical paradigms. <clears throat> Therefore, <clears throat> you're not going to get a Antichrist, millennium, or whatever paradigm out of this if you're paying attention to the structure that is here. Which means... <clears throat> The next part of your outline, this section of the book of Daniel, the 70 weeks, is apexegetical of the period from Babylon to the first advent of Christ. All right, now, 
having noted that, what do we do with these periods of weeks which are broken down inside these four verses? We have a period of seven weeks, or seven sevens, literally, in the Hebrew text. We have a period of 62 weeks, or 62 sevens. And then we have a final week, one week, or one seven. What do we make of this uh, pattern of seven, 62, and one? Well, let me make a suggestion that these are blocks of unfolding redemptive history. The seven weeks are indicative of the Persian period. That is, the period from the time of Cyrus's decree for the children of Israel to go back to Palestine to the return of Nehemiah in 433 B.C., or perhaps even down to the coming of Alexander the Great and the end of the Persian Empire. The 62 weeks would then be the next period. Notice, we're, wa- we're working in, in the pattern of the succession of the world empires and the unfolding of redemptive history. So the 62 weeks would be the Greek period, period from Alexander the Great, 333, down to the uh, coming of the Romans in 63 B.C., what we could call the period of the Hellenization of Judaism. That is, when Judaism becomes exposed to Greek Hellenistic thought and begins to accommodate itself to its cultural environment, which would leave the one week as the final monarchy in the sequence, namely the Roman Empire, the period from 63 B.C. to 70 A.D. approximately. Now, you'll notice that these are not exact uh, uh, equivalent periods of years. In other words, it's not 49 years for the Persian. These are blocks of succession. Okay, there are blocks of succession in the unfolding of this pattern of the four empires, the four world empires. And therefore, I'm lining up these uh, numbers with that period of succession. Now, uh, I'm not uh, dogmatic about this, but because the rest of the passage is going through this period of succession, moving from Babylon down to Rome, moving from Babylon down to the coming of Christ, then I'm thinking that the uh, seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week are related to that succession. In other words, it's a block representation of the succession of the empires which are in that period between the fall of the Babylonian Empire and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Well, I'm looking for structural sequences. I'm looking for, uh, shall we say, paradigms of development, which brings us to verse 24 on your outline. Now, verse 24 is actually the broadest stroke. You have, a, you have a, a canvas which you're painting, and you take your broad strokes as you begin to fill in your canvas. This is the broad stroke verse in this 70-week prophecy. It tells you the purpose of the whole 70 weeks. Everything is tied up in terms of a summary in this verse. Notice the duplications. The duplication of upon the people, upon the city. And then the threefold doublets. You have uh, infinitives 
which are negative, to end sin, to complete transgression, to cover or atone for iniquity. The word atone in Hebrew or cover is kippur and refers to the day of kippur, the kippurim, the day of atonement uh, in Leviticus 16, to bring eternal righteousness, to seal the vision, to anoint the Messiah or to Messiah the Messiah. The Hebrew word here is Mashiach. It's quite interesting that it's a, a cognate of the personal name Messiah, only here it is the verb to anoint or to Messiah, this holy of holies. All right, so you have the duplication in the prepositions upon. You have the six infinitives, two, 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 etc., two plus the verb. You have the six infinitives, three of them are negative, Three of them are positive. And then you have this duplication of the Hebrew word holy. The holy city and the holy of holies or the most holy place. Now, the parallel there between holy referring to the city and holy referring to this anointed person or this messiah uh, place is ambiguous. It is possible, as your English translations uh, read, it is a most holy place with place in italics. But there is one place in the Bible where this very Hebrew phrase, most holy, holy of holies, is, re- is used to refer to a person. And that occurs in 1 Chronicles 23.13. Now, I'll make a note of it. I'm not going to have you look it up. But in that passage, the priest Aaron is called a most holy person. Therefore, it is conceivable that here in verse 24, the holy city is contrasted with the most holy person who is the most holy anointed, namely the most holy Messiah. Therefore, we cannot conclude that when the English translators supply the word place in verse 24, that they're necessarily accurate in that translation because place isn't in the text. It could be a person, as that passage in 1 Chronicles 23:13 indicates. Well, <clears throat> to sum up then, verse 24 gives you the overview of the whole 70 weeks in this city. Something is going to happen to end sin, to complete the transgressions, or to bring them to completion, to cover over or atone for iniquity. In other words, to forgive it. And as that occurs, at the same time, when this city is the scene of that, it's also the city of someone who's going to bring eternal righteousness. He is going to seal up the vision. That is, he's going to complete the prophecy. And he's going to be an anointed person or he's going to anoint a place. I'm going to lean towards the anointed person because I think that when we get to verse 26, there is no question about the fact that we have an anointed person. Well, this beginning verse of the 70 weeks is talking to us about what's going to happen in Jerusalem when Jesus comes in his first advent. He's going to complete transgression. He's going to atone for iniquity. He's going to put an end to the sins of his people. He's going to bring in eternal righteousness as a justifying grace. He's going to seal up the prophets. He's going to say the law and the prophets are until me. 
And he's going to open the books, the prophets, and he's going to say to his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, all of the law and the prophets speak of me. In other words, this prophecy is talking about what Christ is going to sum up when he says that all of the prophets are speaking of me. And he is going to be anointed. He is going to be messiahed. He is going to be described as the most holy one of God. Well, once again, the summary verse of 24 is a microcosm of the entire section of this 70 weeks prophecy. So we begin with a broad stroke, which gives us the, the mountaintop overview of what's going to happen in the city to bring an end to sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to bring the anointed one of the Lord into that place. Now, in verses 25 and 26, you'll notice that we have a pattern which is also a small frame. The coming of the Messiah in verse 25, the cutting off of the Messiah in verse 26, and what is framed in between is the 7 plus 62 weeks or the 69 weeks. Now, what we've done in moving from verse 24 to 25 and 26 is we move from the broad stroke canvas from the mountaintop view down to a more narrow focus on the 69 weeks and their climax. The 69 weeks we're going, <clears throat> is going to climax in the advent of the Messiah and in his death and crucifixion. In other words, this smaller structural symmetry is zeroing in on something that's going to happen to the Messiah himself. He's not only going to come, but in the midst of that 69 weeks, he's going to be cut off out of the land of the living by his death upon the cross. We conclude, therefore, that the 69 weeks terminates with the death of the Messiah. Whatever, however long the 60 weeks are, and they're not years, okay, we know that already, however long they are, they are an indication or a symbol of that period which will terminate in the crucifixion of the Messiah of God. Now, there's another thing to notice in 25 and 26. If we look at the 62 sevens, or the 62 weeks, in verse 25 it begins an era in which Jerusalem will be rebuilt with plaza and moat in times of distress. And then in verse 26, that 62 weeks comes to an end. This, I think, is a reference to the Hellenistic era in Jerusalem. It is uh, framing what happens in that second block of 62 weeks that I suggested when we have the three blocks from uh, the uh, Persian period to the Hellenistic period to the Roman period, 7, 62, and 1, making up the 70 weeks. For indeed, during the Hellenistic era, during the era in which Alexander the Great brought the Greek uh, world into the Near East, into Palestine, into the Promised Land, Jerusalem was uh, uh, oppressed uh, back and forth. It, was never it wasn't destroyed again until 70 A.D., but nonetheless, it was a place where armies marched back and forth in a number of places. It was besieged, uh, namely by Pompey in uh, 63 B.C. for three months, but not by Alexander. As I mentioned last week, Alexander came to Jerusalem about 33, 233 B.C. and uh, 333 B.C., I'm sorry, 
And he was ushered into the temple where he was shown the prophecy from the book of Daniel in chapter 8. And so he spared the city and the temple. The end of that era would be the end then of this Hellenistic period. But there is one end yet to be, and that is the complete end. And in verse 26, we have a description of, in fact, an emphatic description, where you have a double end in that verse. The end with a flood until the end of wars, which is brought on by the people of the prince, or the people of a prince. Now, this prince is not the Messiah of verse 25. It is true. The same Hebrew word is used. You notice in verse 25, Messiah the prince or Messiah the leader or Messiah the ruler in your version. That's the same Hebrew word here in verse 26. But this prince is not the Messiah because he is bringing a complete end to the city and the holy place. He must be Titus, the Roman general of 70 A.D. Now, verse 26 and 27 also have a frame, a threefold repetition of the word desolation in Hebrew. A determined desolation in verse 26 and a desolation which has been decreed or determined in verse 27, sandwiching an abomination of desolation or an abomination by one who makes desolate in between. Now, since this is occurring in the one final week of the 70 weeks, this is the Roman era. We have moved in verse 24 from a broad outline of the whole 70 weeks to the more narrow focus of the 69 weeks in verses 25 and 26, including the Hellenistic period, to a complete end to the city at the end of verse 26. And now the specific emphasis upon who is going to bring it to an end Namely, the Romans, the uh, fourth, uh, the last building block uh, uh, of the beginning and ending paradigm. And the Romans are going to confirm a covenant. That is, they're going to make an agreement with the Jews. And then they're going to break that covenant in the middle of the week. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be three and a half years. Simply is an indication symbolically that they're going to destroy and bring an end to offering, to destroy the city and bring an end to sacrifice and offering, which they did when they destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. So that the abomination which makes desolation is the defiling of the temple by the Romans in the year 70 AD. Now, I do want you to turn to Mark chapter 13 for a moment. In Mark chapter 13, we have the uh, Markan record of the Olivet Discourse, which is also duplicated in Matthew 24. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. This is also called the Little Apocalypse because it is a very succinct and abbreviated description of the present and the future. And in verse 14 of this chapter, Jesus refers to the abomination of desolation. In the parallel passage, Matthew 24, 15, he actually says that this was the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. 
So here in Mark 13, 14, Jesus is talking about what Daniel was talking about in Daniel 9, 27. Now, this is the same thing that Jesus is doing in this passage in general. In Mark 13, you will notice in verse 2 that his disciples are asking, uh, what is, what, when is the end going to come? And Jesus says, when you see these great buildings with not one stone left upon another. In verse 4, Jesus, uh, disciples ask Jesus when these things will be. Jesus is therefore saying in verse 2, this which you see when you see not one stone standing upon another is that which I'm talking about right now, namely the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This then is the near end of the apocalyptic imagery. That is, the near end of Jerusalem is the approaching end of the fulfillment of the prophecy of the 70 weeks in Daniel 9. But when you come to verse 24 of Mark 13, you will notice that he begins to talk about the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. He has switched gears Within the very same chapter, in the body of the same discourse, he has moved from what is close at hand, coming in within 30 or 40 years, namely 70 AD, when one, not one stone will be left upon another. And he is projecting beyond that to the coming of the Son of Man in glory. Now, that is obviously a reference to the very end of world history and to the final coming and last judgment. Notice that then verse 14 is not associated with the final coming of the Son of Man on the clouds of glory. Verse 14 is associated with the abomination of desolation when not one stone will be left upon another at the destruction of Jerusalem. So within the Olivet Discourse, Jesus moves in tandem between the now and the not yet. The near now and the consummate not yet. The near now crisis of 70 AD and the not yet consummation of the coming of the Son of Man at the end of history. Verse 24 and following. He is not talking about the same sequential sequence. He is talking about the typical New Testament distinction between the now eschatological or semi-eschatological and the not yet eschatological or the fully consummate eschatological. And he is doing it in such a way as to indicate that the one follows the other, even though there may be 2,000 or 20,000 years between those events. All right, now that's the end of my observations on uh, Daniel 9 and the 70 weeks. It is basically, as I have said before, an attempt to determine the structure of the passage on the basis of the duplicate patterns, even triplicate patterns that are there. It is not an attempt to read into the passage what we do not find there. The bracket of verse 24 and 27 is the bracket of of 586 B.C. and 70 A.D. 
You cannot stick a millennium in there. You cannot insert an antichrist or a tribulation in there. It won't work. Jesus himself says it won't work. He tells you in Mark, in Matthew 24, verse 15, that this abomination of desolation here in Daniel 9, 27 is what he is, is what Daniel was projecting when the city of Jerusalem will have not one stone left upon another. Rob? So is there any part of Daniel 9 that is yet to be fulfilled, that's still future for us? Not in my opinion. Now, when we take a look at Daniel 11, I will set up another symmetrical paradigm in which I will try to support how the symmetry of the way Daniel lays out these visions supports what I've said here about the 70 weeks. All right, then we're ready for Daniel chapter 11. Yes, another question on Daniel I'm not real firm on it, but you see what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to fit the 70 weeks into the sequence of the imagery of the kingdoms. And so I'm saying he's not coming up with this in terms of some uh, numerical paradigm. He's coming up in terms of a symbolic representation of the sequence which moves from Babylon to Persia, to Greece, to Rome. That's what he's doing. And so the symbolism of the numbers is equally equal to the symbolism of the beast, uh, the the uh, the metal image in uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Well, <clears throat> Daniel eleven is one of the most fascinating chapters in all of Scripture, and one of the most intricate. Passages in the whole Word of God. If you have any doubts about the inspiration of the Bible, if you believe in supernatural prophecy or the fact that only God can tell the future, then this chapter should solve your problems. It should put your mind and heart to rest. It is an amazingly detailed prophetic picture of two, three, four hundred years into the future. All right, let's begin on your outline. And you'll notice I put your maps at the back of your outlines, but you'll have, so you'll have to pick out the maps as we come to them. The maps are important to understanding the geography. But let's begin with a short review. And when did Persia become the ruler of the world? Anyone? What year? 539 B.C. And what empire did Persia succeed? Babylon. Thank you, Terry. Babylon is conquered by the Persians. And who was the last king of that conquered empire? Christina? Nebuchadnezzar? No. Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for about 40 years. Who was the last king? Robert? Belshazzar. Belshazzar. But now you know that he's not the sole king. There's another person involved, right? Because Belshazzar is actually the son of the chief Pubah king, who is away from Babylon 
in Tama in the Arabian Desert for almost 10 years. And what was that fellow's name? Even discovered his cylinder. Archaeologists uncovered it. Nabonidus, called the Nabonidus Chronicle. All right, so <clears throat> Nabonidus and Belshazzar are actually co-regents. And where do we find this story of the collapse of that Babylonian empire in the Bible? Daniel chapter 5, the story of the handwriting. handwriting on the wall. Yes, so there's the end of the Babylonian Empire. That's the last night of the Babylonian Empire, the last night of Belshazzar. And Cyrus the Great comes in to conquer the city the Persians take over. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 11, we have Darius the Mede mentioned. This is not the first time he's mentioned in the book. He makes his initial appearance in verse 31 of chapter 5. Darius the Mede is a puzzler. Now, he's not a puzzle for the liberals. Because the liberals say Darius the Mede is a fiction. They're quite open and honest about this. I don't believe there ever was such a person. And the reason that they don't believe there was such a person is that there is no record of a Darius the Mede in any of the other chronicles. For instance, the Greek chronicles or any of the other records of the Babylonian or Persian Empire. So therefore, he had to be invented. The writer of the book of Daniel, who of course, according to the liberals, is writing when? Give me a date for the book of Daniel if you're a liberal. Margaret? Oh, okay. We'll say 2nd century B.C. is very good. Okay, that's a good enough guess. Uh, sometime in the Maccabean period. So obviously he's writing about 400 years after these events or 300 years after these events. And uh, he gets confused, doesn't he? He knows about the Dariuses that were kings of Persia, but he thinks that one of them was a Median and he sticks them into conquering the Babylonian Empire when he forgets that it was Cyrus that did it, or he didn't know that Cyrus did it, so he invents or he manufactures this Darius or confuses him. All right, they've got all kinds of explanations for how this Darius the Mede gets in there, but one thing they know is that he never lived. <laughs> That's for sure. Same thing they were saying in the 19th century about Belshazzar. He never lived until they found Belshazzar in an archaeological text. And then, of course, they had egg all over their face, but they didn't change their minds about believing in the inspiration of the Bible. Okay, well, the second suggestion from some conservative evangelical scholars is that Darius the Mede is a fellow named Gubaru. Now, we do know this man from the uh, Chaldean Chronicles. We know that there was a person named Gubaru who was governor of Babylon after the city was conquered, and he was governor under Cyrus the Great for perhaps a few months, perhaps a year or so. And so <clears throat> some believe that this fellow Darius the Mede is actually the governor of Babylon after the city falls. But the third suggestion <clears throat> is the one that carries the greatest weight. I should say carries the greatest weight because the greatest number of evangelical scholars have endorsed it. 
The name Darius the Mede is another name for Cyrus the Great. Now, the leading advocate of this is Donald J. Wiseman, the late Donald J. Wiseman, whom we mentioned at the beginning of this series, the uh, great uh, cuneiform uh, scholar who translated the Chronicle of the Chaldean Kings for the first time into English in 1956 and made a great contribution to the uh, historicity of the Babylonian records and the biblical record. Uh, Donald J. Wiseman believed in the inspiration of the Bible, and therefore uh, he couldn't accept the liberal suggestion that there was a mistake here or that the name had been invented. So when he looked at chapter 6, verse 28, which reads, The reign of Darius and most English versions have and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian, as if they are two different or distinct individuals, Wiseman noticed that that uh, and particle, which is the while consecutive in Hebrew grammar, could also be translated even. And so he translated that verse, the reign of Darius, even in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, that is an interesting solution and suggestion as to how these two names uh, may be used uh, differentially. That is, they're talking about the first same person, but they're giving a kind of different slant on his background or on his uh, cultural exposure. Uh, I'm not uh, voting for number two or three. Uh, I'm leaving it up in the air. Uh, I'm waiting for the liberals to have egg on their face again someday. And uh, some Persian document is discovered in which Darius the Mede is identified quite clearly. But one thing I do know, the Bible is not in error here, and therefore the Bible will be vindicated even as it has been over and over again. And we cited the instance of Belshazzar uh, earlier. All right, now to verse 2. How many Persian kings are contemplated by this passage? Mary Lou? Four? And what does the fourth king do? Christina? He gains more riches. Randy? He invades Greece. All right. So the fourth king invades Greece. Now, before you write down anything, uh, let's think about this for a moment. How many Persian invasions of Greece were there? Margaret, how many were there? There were a few. There were a few. Terry? I think. Two, all right? The two you know is the two that's right. All right, there were two invasions of Greece, all right? When did these occur? Give me the dates for the first and second Persian invasion of Greece. We had these last week. I know that you may not have brought your sheets back with you, but the first one was 490 B.C., The second one was 10 years later, 480 B.C. Now, was the same king of Persia responsible for both invasions of Greece? In other words, did the same king take his army across the Hellespont into uh, Macedonia and Greece 
twice. Terry's voting yes. Randy's saying no. Now, you remember the story. Why was the second invasion launched ten years after the first? Because the son of the first king wanted to repay the Greeks for defeating them the first time in 490, right? In both of these invasions, the Persians are embarrassed by the Greeks and defeated and sent running back to Asia Minor and to Mesopotamia with their tails between their legs, so to speak. All right, so the first invasion of 490 failed where? Where was the big battle? Marathon. Yes, the Battle of Marathon on the plains of Marathon. Very good. Now, the second invasion, 480, where did it fail? It actually failed in a number of places. Give me one. Thermopylae. Thermopylae was one. The pass at Thermopylae and the famous 300 Spartans who stood off the Persian army. Where else? Salamis Bay, Battle of Salamis Bay, which was a naval battle. That was a battle between ships. And finally, about a year after the defeat at Salamis Bay, another land battle between the Persian army and the Greeks. Plataea, P-L-A-T-A-E-A, Plataea. All right, so Thermopylae, Salamis Bay, and Plataea. That's actually the answer to where did he do it in your outline. Thermopylae, Salamis Bay, and Plataea. Well, who was the first king to invade Greece? That was Darius I. Who was the second king? Who was the son of Darius that avenged his defeat, wanted to avenge his defeat? That is Xerxes I. All right. So we have two kings here. We know who the fourth one is. The fourth one is Xerxes I. That's where this sequence ends. Well, then, who are the three more kings? In this text. Well, if we count back from Xerxes, the son, to his father. His father was, again, anyone? Darius I. Who preceded Darius? Cambyses. Cambyses is before Darius. And who is before Cambyses? Cyrus the Great. All right, so we could have the sequence Cyrus to his son Cambyses. Remember, Cambyses took the campaign to Egypt, wanted Persia to invade Egypt, and he actually conquered Egypt for a while, but there he died. And then Darius I, and finally Xerxes I. Now, that will work, except when someone says, yes, but there are supposed to be three kings after Cyrus. So we can't count Cyrus in this sequence. Well, then what happens? If we're going to get down to Xerxes 
And we've got three between Cyrus and Xerxes. How do we get three when there only appear to be two? <laughs> well, between Cambyses and Darius I, there are some who see a pretender. A fellow named Smyrtus, who reigned for about a year in 522 B.C. after the death of Cambyses sometimes called pseudo-Smyrtus, false Smyrtus. Now, this is a highly controversial issue, both amongst biblical historians and secular historians. The dust has not settled on all that has been written in defense or in rejection of this uh, proposition. But if we're going to read Daniel 11.2, in the way that we're going to have three more after Cyrus the Great, then it will have to be um, Cyrus out of the picture, Cambyses, Smyrtus, Darius I, and the fourth then would be Xerxes I. However, either way, it will work, and it works accurately, whether Smyrtus is legitimately in this picture or not. So I will leave aside trying to settle that argument about the historicity of Smyrtus and uh, indicate that we still are going to end up with Xerxes' uh, infidelity to the four count uh, in this verse, regardless of how we uh, of how we number them. All right. The focus is shifting. Notice what is happening in this vision that Daniel is being given. He is moving from the end of the Babylonian Empire to Persia, and now the end of the Persian Empire to this mighty king in verse 3 who will arise and rule with authority. Who is this? This is Alexander the Great. This is the one who puts an end to Persia, even as Darius the Mede or Cyrus the Great put an end to Babylon. So notice what we're having, what we're doing here in chapter 11. We're now coming down to a very meticulous description of what's going to happen to the Greek Empire and its subsequent divisions. We're going to get very, very detailed here in chapter 11. All right, now, on the first map uh, that you'll recognize is a map that we used last week. Uh, Alexander comes from Macedonia across the Hellespont to the Granicus there in 334. And we have met Alexander before in chapter 2 where he is described in terms of the bronze thigh as having rule over all the earth. In chapter 7, verse 6, and chapter 8, verses 5 to 8, where in verse 5 of chapter 8, he is described as moving over the surface of the whole earth. And finally, in chapter 8, verse 21, he is specifically identified. 
as the king of Greece. Alexander the Great marched over more of the civilized world's surface than any other imperial king before him. Within the space of 10 years, he had gone all the way from Macedonia to the frontier of Afghanistan and India, as well as going to Egypt and to uh, Libya. So, Alexander does cover the whole earth and rule over the surface of the whole earth. Now, in the sense that we're talking about the civilized world, we're not talking about the whole earth literally, eastern and western hemisphere. We're simply talking about the locus of the world's civilization at that time. Now, taking the second map and moving on to verse 4. This verse is describing the Diadochi. And I've given you that uh, uh, Greek uh, expression there and transliterated it for you. Uh, you may recall from last week that the Diadochi is, is translated into English as what? They are the four generals, but what does the word mean? It means the successors, right? These are the successors that the word, the Greek term diadochi there means successors. So you can write that in the blank there. Uh, these are the four successors, the four generals to Alexander, uh, who after his death uh, were given uh, divisions of his empire in 323. Now, in that fourth verse, the four points of the compass are mentioned, and that would refer to the four areas. Yes. What are the four points of the compass? North, south, east, and west. All right, now taking a look at your map, number two. In the west, we have the kingdom of Cassander, one of the four generals. North of Cassander, we have the kingdom of Lysimachus in Thrace. East, we have the kingdom of Seleucus. And south, we have the kingdom of Ptolemy. Now, there is one other general, namely Antigonus, whom you see in Asia Minor on that map. And we want to talk about him a little later this evening. But with respect to the fourfold division, he doesn't figure initially because these are the four that were given the original uh, uh, power or the original uh, 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 control. Now, Lysimachus has Greece and Macedon. Cassander has Thrace, which is modern-day Bulgaria. Ptolemy has Egypt. And Seleucus has Mesopotamia and Syria. All right, so Alexander's kingdom is divided. And here are 
the uh, leaders of the division and their territories. Now, notice in that fourth verse that this kingdom will be broken, but it will be though it and will be parceled out, though not to his own descendants. Not to whose own descendants? Alexander. All right. Now, who was Alexander's descendants? All right. First of all, Alexander had a half brother. His name was Philip. He was named for Alexander's father and obviously Philip's father, Philip of Macedon. But Alexander's half brother, who was uh, obviously conceived not by Alexander's mother, but by a paramour of Philip of Macedon, his father. Alexander's half-brother was mentally handicapped. And when Alexander died, the generals did not want to turn the uh, empire of Alexander over to someone who had mental disability. And Philip survived for about six years after Alexander's death when he was murdered by his stepmother. That is, by the legitimate wife of Philip of Macedon and the mother of Alexander the Great. Obviously, she didn't want any contamination of the royal line, so at her end, uh, she dealt with him and dispatched him. All right, so that eliminates that part of the family. Alexander actually had children. He had a legitimate son to a Persian wife, a woman named Roxanne. who was allegedly very beautiful. And he married her in order to kind of seal an alliance between the Greeks and the Persians. And in fact, that wedding between Alexander and Roxanne was also a wedding in which more than 90 Persian women were married by Greek soldiers. Now, Roxanne had a child who was named Alexander IV. Well, who's Alexander III? That's easy. If his son is Alexander the Fourth, who's Alexander the Third? His father. Who is? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was actually the third Alexander of the Macedonian Kingdom. He had a grandfather, a great grandfather named Alexander the First, King of Macedon, and a grandfather named Alexander the Second. He was the third Alexander, and so his son was the fourth. And this son, born to Roxanne was murdered by Cassander at age 13, murdered in 310 by Cassander because Cassander didn't want any competitors from the line of Alexander getting in his way. That means that little Alexander IV was born about 323, the same year Alexander died. Alexander never saw him because Roxanne was carrying him when Alexander died. 
But the child was a threat to Cassander's ambitions and so was executed. But in addition to a legitimate son from his legitimate wife, Roxanne, Alexander fathered an illegitimate son to a woman, another Persian woman named Barsine. That's pronounced Barsine. She was a mistress to Alexander, and she bore him a son named Heracles in 326, and Cassander murdered him in 309 B.C. when he was 17 years of age. You're getting a picture that this is a fairly ruthless bunch, but what is at stake here is power, and you don't want anybody threatening your hold on the power, not even a son of your favorite general, Alexander the Great, particularly when you're stronger than his myth and there's no one around to defend his descendants anymore. Consequently, we are realizing that this struggle between the Diadochi was not a pleasant matter. It was a bloody, ruthless business. And the turning point in this uh, conflict between the four generals comes in a campaign of Antigonus Monophthalmus. Now, Monophthalmus is on your outline, and we'll ask Robert to break that down for us. The meaning of Monophthalmus? Monophthalmus. Well, it's one something. <laughs> What would you guess, Margaret? One brain? No. What's ophthalmos? What's what's ophthalmic lotion or ophthalmic fluid? One eye, correct. Antigonus was a one eye. He's in an uncomplimentary fashion called a cyclops. That's not really true. Cyclops is usually one eye in the middle of the forehead. But he had only one eye, and no one knows what had happened to the other one, whether it was only born with one eye or whether it had been put out. But you'll notice on your map number two that Antigonus is the fly in the ointment. This division of the empire of Alexander was something that Antigonus wasn't going to court very long. He wanted to reunite the whole extent of Alexander's kingdom from Macedonia to Thrace to Mesopotamia to Egypt to Asia Minor and Syria. He wanted it under his power. And so he campaigns for a number of years to force the other four to submit to him. He tries to conquer Seleucus in Mesopotamia from 310 to 309 B.C., He fails. He tries to conquer Ptolemy in Egypt from 306 to 305 B.C. He fails. And finally, he turns his attention to Cassander in Greece from 304 to 302 B.C., and he fails there as well. Well, if you take the third map, 
<clears throat> the other four decided they'd had enough of Antigonus, the one eye. And so consequently, they agreed to join together, that is, to stop fighting against one another or politicking or leveraging against one another in order to see who would be king of the hill. But they decided to unite against Antigonus. And they fought a war against him in Asia Minor. And you'll notice in that third map, in the center of Asia Minor, there is a star beside the city Ipsus. In 301 B.C., at that location, in the Battle of Ipsus, Antigonus was killed by a coalition of Seleucus, Ptolemy's army, though Ptolemy wasn't personally present on the battlefield, Cassander, and Lysimachus. So, the sovereignty that had been dispatched to Alexander's general has now been uh, reduced to a struggle between the four in 301 B.C., but primarily because of where the land of promise, the promised land where Palestine is between the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic Empire, the focus is now going to be upon those two nations as they battle back and forth with one another and catch the children of Israel or the Jews in the vice in between. So take your break and we'll come back to begin to discuss the Syrian wars or the wars between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Antigonus was killed at the city with the star? Yes, Antigonus was killed okay. on the battlefield. Okay. So they not only uh, conquered him, but they also got rid of him. The next 30 verses of chapter 11, that is, uh, verses 5 to 35, are going to detail the six Syrian wars. The wars between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, which are called in the historical chronicles the Syrian Wars, and will last from 301 to 164 B.C. We're going to touch on four of them this evening as we make our way up to verse 12. But let's begin with verse 11, which talks about the king of the south. Now, he is contrasted with another king. Who is the opposition king? Take a look at verse 6. King of the North. All right, now, if you still have that map that uh, had the Seleucids and the Ptolemies map number two, you'll notice that when Antigonus is defeated in 301, then the Seleucids take over his territory. 
So that dark part of your map becomes Seleucid territory after 301. And obviously the king of the north, that is north of Egypt, is the king of Seleucia, that empire or that kingdom. And the king of the south is Egypt, the king of the Ptolemaic empire. You know that the king of the south is the king of Egypt because of verse 8, where Egypt is specifically mentioned. So there's no argument about the fact that the king of the north is the Syrian or Seleucid king and kingdom, and the king of the south is the Egyptian or Ptolemaic king and kingdom. The particular king of the south here in verse 11, who grows strong along with one of his princes, gains ascendancy over him and obtains dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. This is the first of the Ptolemies. Ptolemy the first Soter. Rob, what does Soter mean? Uh, The king of Soter? No, his his nickname is Soter. What's the word Soter mean? Yes, Savior. It's a Greek word for Savior. All right, so Ptolemy the first Soter is uh, given his name because he saved the Rhodians from Antigonus, actually Antigonus' son Demetrius. Now, if you take your next map, map number four, You'll find the island of Rhodes off of Asia Minor, just below Halicarnassus. You'll see it in the Mediterranean, little white spot on your map. <clears throat> this island was threatened by Antigonus before his death. And in 305, 304 B.C., Ptolemy, Ptolemy I delivered or saved the island of Rhodes and the city of Rhodes from siege by the son of Antigonus, a boy named, not a boy, a man named Demetrius. Now, because he had delivered the city, the Rhodians, the people of Rhodes, called Ptolemy I Soter. In addition to naming him their savior... They also erected a monument to commemorate the victory of Ptolemy over Demetrius. What was it? Well, you think of the island of Rhodes. What do you think of in the ancient world? Christina? Yes. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world. What was it, Christina? Anyone? The Colossus of Rhodes, a giant statue of the Greek god Helios. Now, Helios is the god of the sun. This statue, which the Rhodians erected in commemoration of being saved by Ptolemy I in 305 B.C., was over 107 feet high. It took them 12 years to build it. And it was a huge statue which, according to some descriptions, straddled the port of the city of Rhodes. Ships would sail 
in between his legs. It snapped and collapsed in an earthquake in 226 B.C. and laid in ruins for over 800 years before it was finally carted off. It was never rebuilt, but there you have a biblical reference indirectly to a king who was responsible indirectly also for one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Now, Ptolemy's prince here in this verse, one of his princes, is Seleucus I Nicator. Now, Nicator means in Greek victor or conqueror. What happened was that Seleucus was the satrap of Babylon when Alexander died from about 321 to 316. Now, if you'll notice that map, number four, he's living in Babylonia, Antigonus is controlling what is modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor, and Antigonus marches over towards Babylonia and drives him out of his satrap. So Seleucus runs to Ptolemy. He flees to Egypt. Notice what Daniel is prophesying. Prophesying that one of the princes of the king of the south, namely Seleucus I. And from 316 to 312, Seleucus will hole up in Egypt with Ptolemy until Antigonus's son, whom we mentioned before, Demetrius, is defeated at the city of Gaza on the Gaza Strip. Now, on that map number four, it would be just below the letter L in Jerusalem on the coast of Palestine. This battle in 312 between Demetrius and Ptolemy of Egypt, supported by Seleucus as one of his generals in his army, is, is a success for Ptolemy and Seleucus because Demetrius's father, Antigonus, is campaigning in Central Asia Minor. He does not have the full force of his army on the plains of Gaza in 312 in order to defeat this uh, attack or invasion of uh, Ptolemy and Egypt, uh, assisted by Seleucus, uh, into uh, the territory of uh, Antigonus. Well, the result of this is that Ptolemy defeats Demetrius, and Seleucus is able to reoccupy his position as the head of the Seleucid Empire, Mesopotamia, which leaves the, the ground set for that confrontation 11 years later in 301 at Ipsus in Central Asia Minor, where Antigonus is finally defeated once and for all and killed on the field of battle. When Ptolemy defeats Demetrius in 312, he now, even through Seleucus, becomes the controller of Egypt, Israel, Syria, Mesopotamia, and everything to the border of Afghanistan. 
The only thing he doesn't control is Greece, Macedon, Thrace, and Asia Minor. That's what the phrase, he shall have great dominion, means. He rules from the border of India all the way to Greece, ultimately, when Antigonus is defeated. It is one of the greatest extents of the Ptolemaic Empire uh, in the history of the world. Now, what could be happier than, okay, Ptolemy has Egypt and a good bit of territory, and Seleucus has got his satrapy back. He's back in Babylon or Mesopotamia. What should be happier? And everybody is back in the place that they once had. Well, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and nobody is really happy with all the territory he's got, and so we have two Syrian wars that break out between these two empires, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. So in verse 6, we come to the next stage of this conflict between the king of the north and the king of the south. It says, after some years, they will form an alliance. What does the phrase after some years means? It means after the era of the first and second Syrian wars. Now, these two wars are not detailed here in Daniel's prophecy, but they are the context out of which this alliance is concluded. This alliance puts an end to the first two Syrian wars. Now, on your outline, you have the dates 276 or 271 to 271 or 274 to 271, and those are the dates of the first Syrian war. Let's take a look at map number five now. And the progress of this war begins with Ptolemy, Ptolemy II now, invading Palestine and taking coastal areas up along the Mediterranean through southern Asia Minor. In other words, he marches his army up along the coastal littoral, that is the coastal plain of Palestine, Lebanon, and Syria, goes up into what is modern-day Turkey, uh, southern Turkey, around Tarsus and Cilicia, and he captures a number of uh, coastal regions in that area. Now, Ptolemy II has succeeded his father, Ptolemy I, and he is nicknamed Philadelphus. What does Philadelphus mean? Brotherly love, all right? Now, why is he called Philadelphus? Because he married his sister. Duh. He married his sister, whose name was Arsinoe. Yes, this is a case of incest, but in the ancient world, royal families practiced it. It would be better for her to have been called Philadelphus, right? Because she was a brother lover. But Philadelphus, in his case, is brother or sister lover. Now, the opponent in the first Syrian war, the opposite, the, the opponent to Philadelphus, Ptolemy II Philadelphus, is Antiochus I Soter again. Now, Antiochus I Soter is called Soter, like Ptolemy I was called Soter, but Soter here is 
a label that he wins from the so-called elephant victory. Now, the elephant victory or the elephant battle was fought in 273 in Central Asia Minor. This battle was a battle between the Seleucids and Tychus I and the Celts or the Gauls or the Galatians. Mm. The Galatians. All right, here is a story. About 280 B.C., a group of migrants, approximately 40,000 of them, who had started from southern France and marched out across central Europe, around the Alps, and down through the Balkans, came to the Hellespont, actually came to the Bosporus there. As you see on your map, the Bosporus is where Byzantium is and crossed over into Asia Minor. They settled in Central Asia Minor in that region around what's called Phrygia, Pergamum, and Gordium. This is the region of the Galatians. You may remember that when Scott Sanborn was talking about the book of Galatians, of the Galatians, he was talking about the north and south theory of the authorship of the Galatians. This is part of the background to the story of where was the book, to, to what region of Galatia was the book directed. Well, these uh, French or Celtic or Gallic migrants killed the son of Ptolemy I Soter in 279, a fellow named Ptolemy Serranos. They seized Asia Minor, and following the death of Lysimachus, who was controlling Thrace, they had marched through Thrace on their way to Asia Minor, they assassinated Seleucus I in 281. Now, these Galatians were horrific, barbarian soldiers, brutal and ruthless, and they were a threat to the stability of the entire Near East. And so Antiochus I decided to take them on, and he met them in central Asia Minor, using his elephant corps. And so this is called the elephant victory. Now, how did he do it? He kept his elephants hidden until the chariots of the Galatians had charged across the plain to the front of his infantry line. Now, the chariots that the Galatians had were the so-called scythe chariots. If you know the movie Ben-Hur, you know in the chariot race that Masala, the bad guy, comes into the arena to go against Judah Ben-Hur, the good guy. The bad guy's got the black horses. The good guy's got the white horses. Stephen Boyd's the black guy. Charlton Heston's the white, good guy. And as Masala comes in to line up his chariot, He has this chariot that's got knife blades on the hubs. That's a scythe chariot. Okay? 
What it does is it cuts the Achilles tendon of a horse which is next to you or it chews up your chariot. But can you imagine what that would do to an infantry line if you were running them across the field of men? Well, that's exactly why the Galatians used them. They used them to go right into the middle of an infantry line and tear everybody to shreds. Now, Antiochus knew that. He knew what they were going to do with their scythe chariots. So he kept his elephants in uh, uh, hidden. He kept them out of the, the line of, of, of uh, vision until the chariots were bolting across the plains. And then he rushed his elephants onto the field of battle and scared the horses that were pulling those chariots so badly that they turned around and ran back and what they didn't dump out of the chariot, they chewed up when they got back to the line of the Galatians. And so he had turned the battle back against the enemy and won the victory, so-called elephant victory. And that's how he gets the name Soter. He saved the day in Asia Minor. Now, the second Syrian war from 260 to 253 is a war in which Antiochus II attacks the Ptolemaic areas in Asia Minor. Now remember, I told you that Ptolemy II had marched up into southern Asia Minor and had conquered some of those coastal regions, but those coastal regions belonged to the Seleucids. And Antiochus II decided that he was going to capture them back. And so for about seven years, there's this back and forth struggle between the two kingdoms over these regions of Asia Minor. Now, the outcome of this second Syrian war was indecisive. But we have Ptolemy II Philadelphus and Antiochus II Theos. Now, why was he called Theos? What does Theos mean? Robert? God. He's called a god. Because he delivered the city of Ephesus from a tyrant in 259-258 BC. And because he had saved the city, the Ephesians called him God, Theos. Now, Antiochus II is married to a lady named Laodice. seemingly happily married in their Syrian bungalow. But this verse, they form an alliance, indicates trouble. The daughter of the king of the south, the king of the south is Ptolemy II, will come to the king of the north, Antiochus II, to carry out a peaceful arrangement. Who is this daughter of the king of the south? Follow me in a second. Her name is Berenice. Looks like it's Berenice, but it's pronounced Berenice. Well, Antiochus II has already got a wife. He's married to Laodice. But Ptolemy says, look, let's settle this battle 
you marry my daughter, Berenice, and we'll seal the deal, and we'll stop fighting one another. And Antiochus says, okay, I'll get rid of Laodicea. So he divorces Laodicea. He marries Berenice. And in 253-252, they seal an alliance. As the verse indicates, they seal a marriage alliance and they put an end to the first two Syrian wars. This is the reason you have to understand the first two Syrian wars to understand the context of what's being described here in verse 6 as the resulting marriage alliance. Well, the rest of the verse goes on to say that she will be given up. She will not retain her position. Berenice will be given up. What happens to Berenice? She's divorced. When Antiochus II decides to remarry Laodicea. Uh, can you keep up with this Peyton place? It's almost as bad as Hollywood's, Hollywood's, no, not Hollywood Squares. I should slander that one, but Hollywood, what's going around. All right, now, Antiochus II wants his first wife back. So he gets rid of Berenice and takes Laodicea back in 246 B.C. Now, the text goes on in verse 6 to say that the one who sired her. Now, this is a difficult Hebrew word. It can be translated as sired, and if that's true, then it's her father, Ptolemy II, who dies in 246. That could be one of the reasons Antiochus II decided he wanted his first wife back, because his new father-in-law was dead and he wouldn't be a problem. But the other possible translation of the Hebrew word here is child. There was a child born to Antiochus II and Berenice. He was born in 251. And he died in 246 when Berenice and the child were put to death by Laodicea. Oh, the outrage of a spurned woman. All right, now, the reference to the one who supported her in those times at the end of verse 6 is probably to Antiochus II, though that is perhaps not crystal clear. All right, any questions about this sequence? Terry? King of the North is Antiochus. Antiochus the second. Rob? I'm trying to figure out why uh, the Lord would record these kind of details. Uh, is this leading to something else? Or is this just... Well, ultimately, it's coming up to Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. But in between, of course, as Berenice goes up to Antioch, where does she pass through? She passes through Israel. Okay? You see, back and forth, Israel is caught in the vice between these two kingdoms. In other words, the political turmoil, military turmoil that's going on is affecting Palestine. 
And sometimes we'll see direct hits, so to speak. And we definitely will get there when we get to Antiochus IV. But all this is building. See, it's building to this climax which is coming with the appearance of Antiochus IV and the abomination of desolation in 167 B.C. All right, now on to map number six and verse number seven. The third Syrian war, which is called the Laodicean War. Now here is a war named for the spurned wife brought back to the king's bed. Why? Well, because Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III, Euergetes, didn't take it lightly that she was divorced. This was, in effect, a breaking of the alliance that had put an end to the Second Syrian War. And so, one of the descendants of her line, or one out of her roots, as you have in the New American Standard Margin in verse 7, refers to Berenice's brother Ptolemy III, Euergetes. Euergetes means benefactor in Greek. And this is a reference to the third Syrian war, which breaks out as Ptolemy III tries to avenge the divorce of Berenice and her death. Now, one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, in whose place? In the place of his father, Ptolemy II, because Ptolemy II dies in 246. Same year that Berenice is divorced and Laodicea is remarried. Who is the king of the north in this verse? The king of the north is Seleucus II, so-called Callinicus, which means gloriously triumphant, or could also be translated beautiful victor, who rules from 246 to 226. Now, who is this Seleucus II? Well, he is put on the throne by his mother, Laodicea. Remember, Laodicea has been remarried to Antiochus II, but in 246, she remarries Antiochus II, and then in the same year, 246, her son Seleucus II is put on the throne. What happened to Antiochus II? She poisoned him. She's not going to be twice bitten. She kills him. She assassinates him. And she does it not only to get rid of him, but to get her little boy on the throne, Seleucus II. And in order to get her little boy, Seleucus II, on the throne, what's she got to do with Berenice and her child? She's got to kill them too. And when the news gets back to Ptolemy III in Egypt, what does he do? Is over my dead body, and he gets his army, and up to Assyria, up to Syria they go. So right up the coast of Palestine, they march once again. Now, Ptolemy III had gotten the news of the divorce of his sister. And when he got the news, he got his army on the march, because he wanted to get to her in order to protect her. But he didn't arrive in time. Laodicea was too quick. 
and she killed both the mother, both his sister and his nephew. She killed them both before Ptolemy III arrived. Well, verse 7 says, he will deal with them and display great strength. Ptolemy III does deal with them. He does display great strength. He not only overcomes Antioch, he not only overcomes Syria, he not only marches through the territory of the Seleucid, he goes all the way to Babylon. Look at that uh, sixth map. You'll notice the dark line of March, where Ptolemy III goes all the way up to Antioch, and then it goes out towards the east, out towards Babylon, and comes back in the space of about four years. He couldn't save his sister, and he couldn't save her son. But he took out his anger on the Seleucid Empire and marched over its entire territory all the way to Babylon in 245 B.C. This is the greatest extent of the Egyptian Empire under the Ptolemies in the history of the world. Egypt controlled everything from the upper Nile all the way to the border of India as a result of the Laodicean War. Ptolemy III revenged his sister and conquered the Seleucids between 246 and 241. Now, verse 8 gives us an interesting side story. Their gods and their metal images and precious vessels of silver and gold he will take captive to Egypt. What is the significance of capturing their gods, mainly the Seleucid gods? Why would an army do that? Why would a king do that? Terry? It would be a sign of making that kingdom impotent. Yes, very good. Exactly right. Conquer their gods, take their gods away, you take away their power. You take away their energy, you take away their divine force. And so you capture the enemy's gods in order to humiliate the enemy themselves. Because if you control their gods, you control them. In addition to the Seleucid gods that he looted... And the temples that he looted as he marched through the territory of Babylon and Syria and so on. He also captured the gods of the Persians, the, the Egyptian gods rather, that Cambyses, the king of the Persians, had, depart, had deported in 525 B.C. when he invaded Egypt. When Cambyses went down into Egypt, he captured the gods of Egypt from the pyramids and from the shrines and the temples, and he sent them back home to Persia. And what Ptolemy, the, uh, what, what Ptolemy III does is he recaptures those gods and brings them home to Egypt, and that's the reason he's called Euergetes. He's called Benefactor. 
He's the benefactor of Egypt by not only looting the temples of the Seleucids, but by bringing home the old Egyptian gods to Egypt, the gods that the Persians had captured over 200 years before. Verse 9. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. Now, the latter, notice verse 8. The, the antecedent of latter is the king of the north. The king of the north here is Seleucus II. So, Seleucus II will enter the realm of the king of the south. Who is the king of the south? Ptolemy III. Back to your map. Notice the line of 245 B.C. on map number 6. Ptolemy III returns from Mesopotamia in 245 because of a rebellion brewing in his homeland, Egypt. And he marches back down to Egypt in that year. As he goes down to Egypt, Seleucus II, who had retreated into Asia Minor. Notice the little dotted line, Seleucus II, 242. Seleucus II, who had run away from from Ptolemy III, comes back into Syria, into Antioch, as Ptolemy uh, marches back to Egypt in 245. But the verse continues, verse 9. The king of the south but will return to his own land. Now, Seleucus II fails to conquer Ptolemy III. Though, if you'll notice the dotted line, Seleucus down in 241 uh, comes down towards Damascus and then penetrates into that shaded region just to the left of the city of Damascus. And that is the attempt of some scholars to represent an invasion of Ptolemaic or Egyptian territory by Seleucus II in that year. But that verse in uh, Daniel 9, that last phrase, but will return to his own land, that but, which is in the Hebrew a while consecutive, Ushav may also be translated and, and will return to his own land, referring to the fact that Seleucus comes back to his own Assyrian and Antiochian territory at the, uh, at the march back into Egypt by Ptolemy III. Either way, there is a reference to the fact that Seleucus is not going to overpower Ptolemy III. He's not going to reconquer Egypt. He's simply going to reoccupy the territory that he'd been driven out of four years before. All right, that brings us to verse 10. And his sons. Whose sons? The sons of Seleucus II, king of the north. Who are they? Seleucus III, Serranus, which means thunder, and Antiochus III, Megas, Megas, which means the great. 
Now, the two sons of Seleucus, one of them will keep on coming. Verse 10. Referring to Antiochus III. Notice map number 7. Antiochus III. Attempts to invade Egypt in 219. And you'll notice there's a little block label, Army of Antiochus besieges Nicolaus in 219 B.C. That's as far as he got in 219. Antiochus attempting to reclaim some of the territory of the Egyptians or the Ptolemies in 219, pushing Egypt out of southern Syria back into Palestine, but he fails. Verse 10 continues. He will overflow, pass through, and again wage war up to his very fortress. Now, his very fortress here is the fortress of uh, Ptolemy the third, and that is also uh, on your map at 217 BC, the Battle of Raphia. In 217, Antiochus the third attacks the garrisons of Egypt at Raphia, or the fortresses of the Egyptians along the Gaza Strip there between Gaza and Raphia and even south towards the Delta region of Egypt. And this sets the stage for the Fourth Syrian War. Verse 11, the king of the south will be enraged. This is Ptolemy the Fourth. Philopater. What's Philopater mean, Rob? Philo? Brotherly? Pater. Let's take Pater first. Father? Father. Philo. As in Philadelphia. That's why I said brother. No, Adelphus would be the brother. Philo, yes. Father lover. Yes, lover of his father. Ptolemy IV was a lover of his father, Ptolemy III, and he succeeds him in 221. Serranus, Seleucus III, Serranus, has been assassinated by his soldiers in Asia Minor during a campaign against a city there called Pergamum, which you know from the book of Revelation. It's one of the seven cities of Asia Minor. And in this verse, the king of the north is Antiochus III the Great. So the king of the south, Ptolemy IV, the king of the north, Antiochus III. The latter will rise and meet at Raphia in 217, as we've already noted from map number 7. And a great multitude will be on the field. How great a multitude? Well, a massive army. Antiochus III had 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, 
and 102 Indian elephants on the plains of Gaza at Rafia. Ptolemy IV had 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 African elephants. Antiochus III is defeated by Ptolemy IV and retreats to Antioch. 217, end of the Fourth Syrian War. The last note there in verse 11, who is the former? The former is Ptolemy IV. Which brings us to the last verse for consideration this evening, verse 12. The multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up. Whose heart will be lifted up? Well, the former, the antecedent in verse 11 is Ptolemy IV. It is the heart of Ptolemy IV that will be lifted up. For indeed, Ptolemy IV was a vain and voluptuous man. He was devoted to the god Dionysius, sometimes called Bacchus. And the worship of Dionysius and Bacchus was by orgies, wine and women. In fact, Ptolemy IV would often dress himself up to look like Dionysius. The expression tens of thousands there, which are going to fall, is an idiom. It's a Hebrew idiom meaning a great many and refers to the number of Syrians or those in the army of Antiochus III that fell at Raphia in 217, approximately 15,000. 10,000 killed and four to 5,000 taken prisoner by Ptolemy IV, a great multitude indeed, thousands indeed, yet he will not prevail. Ptolemy IV will not prevail. Why? Well, if you take a look at that map number seven one more time, you will notice that when he defeats Antiochus III at Raphia in 217, that he does not press his advantage. He simply withdraws after defeating the army and, and killing 10,000 Syrians on the field. He withdraws to Egypt for wine, women, and song. In other words, he does not press the advantage that he had. He could have overrun Syria and the Seleucids just like Ptolemy III before him. But because of his love of ease and debauchery, he returns to Egypt and allows Antiochus III to live for another day, and we will see next week what that other day is. When Ptolemy IV returned to Egypt, the people of the nation of Egypt grumbled about his foolishness, in not pressing hard against Antiochus III and about his licentiousness. And one aspect of this licentious self-indulgence was that for 20 years, 
During the latter part of his reign, from 207 to 187 B.C., the Nubians or the Kushites, that is those black Africans from the Sudan, invaded Upper Egypt and went all the way up to Thebes or Luxor and controlled Upper Egypt during the reign of Ptolemy IV for over 20 years. That was another reason that the Egyptians didn't much like their king. And so we have fought four Syrian wars, in the process of which Syrian and Egyptian armies have crisscrossed the land of promise, the promised land, back and forth several times. And the generals who have crossed those armies, uh, crossed those uh, plains and uh, fields and hills of, uh, of Palestine have had the name Soter, Theos, Euergetes. Hmm. Is the clash of the Gentile world powers being brought to bear upon the land of the God who really is Theos and Soter? Is that part of why this is recorded here? To show the arrogance of the Gentile kings and the Gentile peoples to give the name of the Most High God to a puny man, to a licentious and debauched human being, and to call him Savior because he delivered them from a political or military enemy? Is that the reason for Daniel 11? Stay tuned. Any questions? Oh, yes, that is a lot of material. But you see the detail of the prophecy here. And the fact that the prophecy is borne out specifically in detailed historical fulfillment. It is an amazing piece of scripture. Yes, it takes a lot of work to understand it. But. You have your crib sheet now. You have all the answers. I did the work for you. It was a lot of fun. Any questions or comments that you have? All right, we are going to finish this 11th chapter. I don't know whether it's going to take one or two weeks, but we will stop before Memorial Day, I promise you. Uh, But as you can see, This is slow going because of the necessity to pay particular attention to the phrases that are here, the details that are in the text. If you're not just going to skip over this passage in your Bible reading, you're going to have to understand what God is telling you here. Or you will skip over it and you see you just kind of blow off that part of the word of God and say, well, I guess that's not really necessary for me to understand. Well, that's a dangerous thing to say. And after tonight, you can't say it anymore. All right. See you next week. Same time, same station.